This is a Federal News Network podcast. At least some members of Congress are pushing for telework to become a big and permanent feature of federal employment. The latest gambit is a bill that requires agencies to gather statistics about telework and prevent them from restricting it. It's called the Telework Metrics and Cost Savings Act. We get more now from one of its sponsors, Maryland Democratic Congressman John Sarbanes. Congressman Sarbanes, good to have you on. Great to be with you, Tom. Well, let's start with what the bill requires in terms of data collection, metrics collection. What do you want to know from agencies through this bill? Well, I mean, the point is that we've had really robust telework uh, over the last 10 years, and I was very pleased back in 2010 to have helped author the Telework Enhancement Act with Congressman Connolly from Virginia and so forth. We got that in place really to encourage federal agencies to increase their uptake, their deployment of telework across the federal government. And that worked pretty well. But we understand it's got to come back and do real evaluation. You want to make sure the data is being collected well. You want to make sure that you know, any sort of bumps in the road that these agencies have encountered um, over the last few years or lessons that have been learned as we've been in the middle of pandemic, other things that really put pressure on the federal workforce and make telework a real important option, that we're learning those lessons, that we're gathering the data. So what this new bill does, uh, which is called, as you as you indicated, um, it's not a, it's not a sexy title, but it's the Telework Metrics and Cost Savings Act, is to is to gather up that data. So it would make sure there's standards in place for how we collect and use federal agency data that's related to telework. It would make sure that the training that's happening is being done in an effective way. So supervisors really know how to push this out and make it available to the workforce. It would guide the agencies on sort of man, good management practices with respect to telework. So all the things you'd like to see to make sure that that remains a robust option going forward. But it also would require some real accountability and transparency. So the federal telework um, option, sort of how agencies are using it, they're going to be required to report on that annually to OPM on sort of the goals, priorities, how they're expanding access to telework, report to Congress if there's any proposed reductions in telework. And that's important because I, for one, and I know many of my colleagues think this is a really important tool and we don't want agencies sort of arbitrarily cutting back on it without providing a good explanation of that. So this bill would put that requirement uh, in place. Uh, And then a real important thing just to, to close here is there's been some fuzziness about the how remote work is considered or defined within the category of telework. And this bill would help clarify the definition, make it clear that remote work counts as telework. And when you're doing data collection, that's really important to make sure you've sorted that out. So those are the uh, that's the idea. But bottom line, you know, there's a lot of technical dimensions to this. Bottom line, it's about keeping telework strong, making sure that's a good option for the federal workforce. And do you envision the level of telework that has been occurring as a result of the pandemic, especially in 2021 and maybe early 22, but mostly 20 and 21? Could that be, in your view, the norm for the federal government? I don't know that we'll see the same levels of telework that, frankly, we we, we had to um, 
engage in with the pandemic. I mean, that was a very extraordinary circumstance. I do think that the pandemic pushed a lot of agencies and workers and supervisors to a new appreciation of how you incorporate telework into the productivity of an agency. So I think you're going to continue to see a real premium on this that has been kind of enhanced and introduced to a lot of the workforce because of the pandemic. And I'm looking forward to what that represents, again, for the productivity of these agencies across the board. We're speaking with Congressman John Sarbanes of Maryland. He's co-sponsor of the Telework Metrics and Cost Savings Act. And what have you heard from constituents and not necessarily just constituents in Maryland, but the federal workforce, the federal employee unions, perhaps? And how does it contrast with what you're hearing from supervisors and maybe even political appointees, some of which have come in and have never seen the bulk of their workforce? Well, first of all, you should know that the bill that we're discussing right now has been strongly endorsed by the National Federation of uh, Federal Employees, the Federal Managers Association, the American Federation of Government Employees. So the people who know this workforce best and understand how it can be most uh, productive, they have leaned in hard behind this this bill, this strengthening of, of telework uh, options. From my constituents, who obviously depend significantly on what the federal agencies can offer to them across the board, the more sort of comprehensive the toolbox is for serving the needs of your constituents, the better for those constituents. So I think they like the idea and have benefited from the, the fact of, of more, in, more telework opportunity for the federal workforce. Look, there's still things that your constituents need to uh, do in person. There's still certain kinds of meetings and interactions that have to happen face-to-face, and telework can't replace that. But if telework allows the workforce to be more nimble in its response to the concerns of constituents, that helps not just boost the morale of the workforce that's doing that, it boosts the morale of the public that's being served. So I think there's there's definitely an appreciation among the public that this is an important tool to have in the toolkit of, of service to the broad public. In terms of the workers themselves, I mean, we have seen surveys over the last few years that demonstrate um, really strong support among the federal workforce for this option. They're expressing that in the sense that they're using this uh, opportunity, but they also, in the surveys that are taken, um, kind of recommit to this as an important option for them. You do see, and you mentioned this, you know, you, you can see among kind of supervisors, some are more hesitant than others in terms of how they deploy this. But I think the general experience is Uh, Once you kind of push forward and embrace this as a tool, you get more comfortable with it. And you also can see how it increases the productivity of the people that are working with you. Frankly, not just those who are teleworking, but those who aren't teleworking. The productivity across these agencies goes up when they treat telework as an important component of how to deploy their, their services. And one of the agencies where this all seems to be clashing somewhat and this being resolved or not resolved, 
I believe, is in your own district, and that is the Social Security Administration. And they've had labor relations issues, let's say, going back to the Trump administration that haven't really been resolved in the uh, uh, Biden era. And there's still an acting director that maybe hasn't been all that effective in settling all of those issues. What's your sense of that as kind of a crucible for all of this, Social Security? Well, I mean, there have been some challenges in some of the agencies, including that one. I think that just puts a fine point on why this this new piece of legislation that we've introduced is so important because uh, it will help to encourage slash um, pressure in some instances the agencies, all agencies, to look at how they can embrace telework, uh, achieve that right balance for how telework is integrated into their agency's workforce and productivity. And by collecting data that reflects that, you create the right kind of positive peer pressure across agencies. So, for example, I would expect to see based on the data collection and the reporting that we are asking for in this bill, that some agencies will, will be able to highlight best practices and really convincing data about how it's contributing to their productivity. And then agencies maybe next door who haven't been implementing it or embracing it at the level they could will feel the pressure and expectation to do the same. And that's exactly what we're going for here. I mean, every agency is different to some extent, but there are best practices that can be uniform. And if we collect data that reflects that and then get it broadly distributed across these agencies and across the workforce and across the various supervisors and leadership, you get to a better place in terms of achieving that proper balance. And just a final question on telework that's a related issue that Congress and the and the bureaucracy have been laboring over for many, many years, and that's the federal real estate bulk footprint, whatever you want to call it. It seems like if there is a permanent increase to the degree we're talking about of telework, it's really past due reevaluating what federal space looks like. Is that part of congressional I, thinking? I think, that's, I think that's fair. And again, I think the information and data will be pulling in as a result of this legislation if we get it passed and it's implemented, will help with that kind of analysis and evaluation. I mean, the world's changing every day. We all have to keep up with that. The private sector's keeping up with that, and, and we're very conscious of that. I mean, a lot of these opportunities around telework that we're trying to make um, available in the federal workspace are ones that the private sector has been embracing for years. And frankly, if we have good telework policies and opportunities in government, we can compete better for really high quality employees that the private sector may be recruiting now because they've got a lot of flexibility. But getting to the question of what's that physical footprint of the federal government look like? Um, are there opportunities to downsize or resize that, for example, um, based on the uptake around telework? That's definitely going to be part of the equation as we as we move forward. And again, I think this legislation will benefit that analysis. And if you've got a couple of minutes longer, I'd like to ask you about a totally unrelated issue, and that is your bill, Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, 
which yeah. the introduction of which was followed by a Biden administration move to overhaul that whole public service loan forgiveness program. What's the latest? What's going on here? What are you trying to accomplish? Well, what we're trying to accomplish is to make it um, easier for people to choose a path of public service um, in spite of having maybe significant loan debt that they've accrued uh, for purposes of their education. So over 10 years ago, I introduced the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Act, which would allow people who are pursuing public service to have reduced monthly payments on whatever their, their student debt was, if it was federal consolidated student debt. And then at the end of 10 years, have that forgiven completely. There have been some bumps in the road along the way. Um, the Biden administration has taken some pretty dramatic steps recently to make sure that those student borrowers out there who qualify for this opportunity are getting the benefits of what we intended from that legislation. So there's a lot of, believe me, I know this because I hear from them every day, there's a lot of uh, of workers in the federal space who are carrying student loans and can benefit from this opportunity for loan forgiveness after 10 years of serving in government and are seeking to take advantage of that. The Biden administration, we're certainly watching them carefully, I think has implemented some steps to make sure that opportunity is there and people can take full advantage of it. So it's just another way to support uh, those people who make the decision uh, to go into public service, which may not be as lucrative as some other opportunities that they could have, but it, rep- it represents a kind of mission orientedness on their part. We want to support them. Helping them with their student loans is one way to do that. But just to play devil's advocate, it's not as if public federal servants are not paid. They're not volunteers. They do have a really good defined benefit pension plan. They have a salary and promotion schedule. They've got a lot of things that actually the many people in the private sector don't have. Uh, do you expect this perhaps maybe to spark, I don't know, a forgiveness program paid for by private sector employers? And maybe the government can get off the hook that way instead of just by fiat for this trillion dollar overhang we've all got. Look, the federal federal workers do have a certain um, amount of benefits. Um, when you add them all up, it typically does not, it still doesn't exceed or necessarily remain competitive against what the private sector can offer somebody with the same credentials. So I think we got to be looking at um, different ways to incentivize people to make that choice, particularly on the front end of their career. And if they know that a significant loan burden could be alleviated by choosing to take the path of public service, in this case, uh, working for the federal government. And those are talented, skilled people that we want to have serving the public from their position in the federal workforce. Then I think we ought to offer that opportunity to them. And, and I've seen it make a difference in the calculation of, of young people who are entering the workforce and are trying to decide, do I take this path or do I take a different path? And if they're taking the path of public service, uh, we want to make sure that we're supporting that because we all will benefit from it in the long run. And of course, you mentioned 10 years ago, the original overhaul bill. Now you have the What You Can Do For Your Country Act. That's just an update to the original loan forgiveness program plan? Correct. That's that's a way to go in and address some of the bottlenecks we've seen, some of the, the kind of glitches and how the program is administered, and make sure that anybody who entered public service with the expectation 
based on the public service loan forgiveness program that their student debt would be forgiven after 10 years of commitment um, ought to be able to benefit from that and have that expectation realized. And so this 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 new bill uh, is designed to make sure that that all of those pieces are in place and that the really thousands, tens of thousands of people across the country who every year will be rolling into this opportunity uh, can rely on it being there for them. Democratic Congressman John Sarbanes of Maryland, thanks so much for joining me. Appreciate it very much, Tom. Have a great day. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who is the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same. Uh, Whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. and, and, And he was just really honest with me. And he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really, it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood, and I and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind that that what we say and do, at, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that 
that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, You know, from historical to current, uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, 
Think twice before sending money through an app or online. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.